I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Okay, this is part four. This is the month-long end to our series on Indigenous Peoples Day. And so I know we're going to start to head into the modern era. And so Garen, set us up. What do we need to know? Where are we going? Yeah, so we've talked about the history and now we're going to talk about the residual effects that continue to today. So there'll be some history in here, but we want to talk about how all this trauma all like these genocides, these various episodes of corruption, distrust, broken treaties, stolen land, how those continue to have residual effects into today. Because again, we want to not just talk about history as a abstract information about the past, but we want to train our own minds to see people in a way that is honoring and empathetic today. And so we want to put down some of the false narratives about not just indigenous people, but this is just the heartbeat of this podcast in general, is by exposing true history, we learn to see people in a way that is honoring and empathetic. And so we want to talk about how the modern realities emerged from this history and kind of connect those dots. Yeah. Okay. So picking that up, we want to talk about the boarding schools, which have been in the headlines recently, but maybe some of you haven't really taken the time to fully digest what happened with the boarding schools. So for more than a century, tens of thousands of indigenous children were taken from their community and forced into boarding schools run by the U.S. government. That's a quote from Deb Holland, Secretary of the Interior. This was part of why, I mean, the reason I use the word genocide, I think I mentioned this before, is that genocide has both that component of killing people, but also of cultural destruction. Yeah, And that was completely the heartbeat behind the boarding schools. These were not schools that were set up to educate indigenous children. They were schools that were set up to eradicate indigenous culture. There were schools where the indigenous children would be forcibly taken from their families, removed from their culture, and punished if they spoke any language other than English. They would be forced to basically remove from themselves all their cultural customs. They tried to make the children forcibly White. And w- what age are we talking about? Children like, like little kids? School age. Yeah, okay. school age children. The, I mean, Babies. the actual ages varied, but young. Yeah. So the schools operated from 1819 through 1969. So relatively modern era. 1969, that's a lot of people alive today yeah. went through these schools. These boarding schools took hundreds of thousands of indigenous children from their parents More than 400 residential schools operated in America and were supported by the U.S. government. So this wasn't private people just making little decisions for their communities. This was a government program. Right. These institutions had the invalid goal of eradicating native indigenous language customs and culture. And at 19 of these schools, they did a closer investigation and survey, and they found 500 bodies of indigenous children who had died there. So they they didn't do this full 
investigation of all the schools, but at this kind of smaller sample, they found 500 bodies. And there were marked and unmarked graves. So in 1920, the Indigenous Act made it mandatory for every Indigenous child to attend a residential school, and it made it illegal for them to attend any other school. So Mm -hmm. this act forced them into this program. Children in these schools were put into forced labor, including raising livestock, dairying, lumbering, brick-making, and railroad construction. So they, there were elements of enslavement at these schools. Mm. Uh, and they were punished if they spoke any of their native languages. It's estimated that at least 3,200 children died within the Canadian residential schools. And the problem was probably a lot worse in America because America has a longer and deeper history of anti-Indigenous sentiment and racism. And America hasn't taken the same introspective look at ourselves as the Canadian government. So if the problem is bad in Canada, it was doubtless worse in America. Yeah, There are most likely more than 10,000 deaths based on the population and the rates. That There are probably at least 10,000 deaths in residential schools in America. Wow. So there's a quote here from Ramona Charette Klein, who was taken from her parents when she was seven years old. Six of her mother's eight children were taken in one day and put into these schools. And she says, Thousands and thousands of children over time and history have been beaten, sexually abused, food withheld. And the residue of that, when you see people struggling in their life and blaming the individual and saying, look at these Indians, they're drunk, they don't know how to work. That hurts deeply. I deal with that almost on a daily basis. Just little things being said and no sensitivity or wondering why that person might be having that type of behavior. I want the world to be educated about what did take place and what continues to take place, the impact of that intergenerational trauma. This community was battered by horrific and even genocidal policies of the American government that continued into basically the modern era. Yeah. And that's just the in, the residential school program. But another element of this whole thing was foster care, where children were not just removed and sent to boarding schools, but they were actually removed permanently or semi-permanently from their families altogether. So prior to 1978, approximately 80% of indigenous American families living on reservations lost at least one child to the foster care system. Just taken from their home. According to data compiled by the National Indian Child Welfare Association, more than 25% of all indigenous children were removed. 25% of kids removed from their homes, with 85% receiving placement outside of their tribes or relatives. So even where there was a relative who could take them, they were the culture itself was seen by the American system as somehow oppressive and an excuse to take these children away. And oppress them. And oppress them. And being put in foster care, even when there are grounds for it, and sometimes there are grounds for it, but even when there are grounds for it, it is a traumatic experience for children. Like Even when it's like the lesser of evils, it's a traumatic thing. And for 25% of these children to be taken from their home, their support system, their family, their identity, their language, their culture. That's not something that you ever fully recover from. Yeah. Well, and it sounds so familiar to the African-American experience when we look at black children in the foster care system. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of it being from disparities mm-hmm. and 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 all, you know all forms all these kinds of racism and oppression. It just sounds. I mean, it's the same. Mm-hmm. America sure. has it down to a science on how to oppress and disparage ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. Punishing people for yeah. not having resources. Yeah, that they took that away. were taken. Yeah. Yeah. It's devastating. Yeah. So I have a quote here from Kendra Lawden, who is a foster care and adoption manager through Fire Lodge Children and Family Services. And she describes this process and says that these children were removed and that is, quote, even if there was no abuse, there was no issues occurring. Even if there were willing and fit family members available, these children were still adopted out to white families. Historical trauma is passed down emotionally, psychologically, internally, and also externally. Mm. And the Oklahoma Department of Human Services reported in 2020 that Native children represent more than 35% of those in foster care, even though they're around 9% of Oklahoma's population. Wow. So indigenous communities have a long and continuing history of being battered by the American system of child support, child rearing, schooling. Their children have a long history of being brought up through trauma and racism, being uprooted and removed from their culture and community. Indigenous Americans attend post-secondary education at a rate of 17% compared to 60% nationwide. Just showing the effects of all this and just the lack of resources for the indigenous community. 17% compared to 60% nationwide. And the result of that then, it's easy to kind of connect the dots that that causes poverty. So the median household income in 2017 for American Indians and Alaska Natives was 40,000 compared to 57,000 for the nation as a whole. The percentage of indigenous Americans living in poverty was 26.8%. That was twice the national rate of 14.6%. Wow. For the rest of the country. The county with the deepest poverty in the United States is a tribal Indian reservation. They also have higher rates of victimization. 84.3% of American Indian and Alaska Native women, or four in five, will experience violence in their lifetimes. In addition, 56.1% of American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced sexual violence in their lifetimes. Which, we need to kind of zoom in on that. Yeah, because of course you're going to experience, I mean, people, there, there is, you know, violence, within communities at the same rate, but indigenous women are experiencing it at such a high rate from people outside of their community. Yeah. So American Indians are two and a half times more likely to experience sexual assault than white communities. And you might think from that that that's just an implying that reservation communities have higher rates of violence. Right. But like Katina, like you said, it is outside violence. The vast majority of this violence is from outside people who come into tribal communities because there is a crooked and broken system in which the tribal police don't have jurisdiction to process outsiders. 
So any crimes that an outsider commits in a reservation then get referred to the federal government for jurisdiction, and the federal government refuses to process most of them. Wow. So essentially, white people come in and victimize and take advantage of the fact that they know that there is very little chance of being prosecuted or facing consequences if they commit violence in reservations. So more than half of Native American women have been sexually assaulted. A third have reported being raped in their lifetimes. And a study from the University of Delaware and the University of North Carolina found that more than two-thirds of sexual assaults against indigenous women are committed by non-indigenous people. Yet non-Native men who assault Native women on reservations can't be arrested or prosecuted because of a 1978 Supreme Court decision that decided that tribal police don't have that jurisdiction. Cheryl Bennett, an ASU professor who studies hate crimes, said, if a white person commits murder or rape against a Native American person, the federal government would have jurisdiction over those crimes instead of the tribe or state government. A 2010 Government Accountability Office report found that when tribal law enforcement sent sexual abuse cases to the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, federal prosecutors declined more than two-thirds of them. On what grounds? So I'm not sure. But my guess would be that the federal government is busy doing a lot of things and they devalue and have, you know, this systemic bias that they devalue the life and priority of a rape case in a reservation versus, you know, some kind of other crime that they want to put their resources towards. It's just mm-hmm. a general devaluing and disregard yeah. combined with they don't want tribal police prosecuting American citizens who aren't part of the reservation community. Mm. It goes back to that conversation from the last episode when we talked about Captain Jack and how he was like, are you going to let us try white people who who commit violence against our community? And who was it? Uh, Meacham said, no, it's like the white law is the law of the land. The Indian law is dead. It was this long history of white people not wanting to be subject to or under the authority of indigenous justice Mm. and not trusting to be under that under that source of justice. But then the result is this broken system where white people come in and, and have an open season of committing rape and murder and crimes against indigenous people who have no protection then, but the justice department that is neglecting them. Mm. So according to Erdrich's 2013 New York Times op-ed called Rape on the Reservation, mm. he says, the justice department reports that one in three Native women is raped over her lifetime, while other sources report that many Native women are too demoralized to report rape. Perhaps this is because the federal prosecutors declined to prosecute 67% of sexual abuse cases, according to the Government Accountability Office. More than 80% of sex crimes on reservations are committed by non-Indigenous men who are immune from prosecution by tribal courts. In some U.S. counties composed primarily of Native American lands, Murder rates of Native women are up to 10 times higher than the national average for all other races, according to a study from the U.S. Department of Justice by sociologists at the University of Delaware and the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. So the actual numbers are even higher than what is reported. Right. I mean, that, this is the number of rapes and murders that are reported, but a lot of them don't get reported because if you become cynical that the justice system cares, then you stop reporting. So most Native women do not report such crimes because of the belief 
that nothing will be done. U.S. Senator Heidi Heitkamp describes this in an interview, saying, The numbers are likely much higher because cases are often underreported and data isn't officially collected. Other possible victims have never been found. As of 2016, there were 5,712 cases of missing Native American women reported to the National Crime Information Center. Just missing women who aren't included in those statistics because their bodies haven't been found. My God. So, I mean, if you do the math, indigenous women are raped at two and a half times the national rate. 80% of the perpetrators are non-indigenous. Just a quick math shows that that means that the indigenous rates of crime, the internal rates of crime, are lower than the national average. Right. That means reservation communities, if left to themselves, would actually have lower rates of all these crimes and would be safer places than the average American city. So the, the vast preponderance of these crimes are people from the outside coming in and preying upon indigenous women because they can. Lisa Brunner, an indigenous rape survivor and advocate, describes, Sexual assault has been experienced by Native American women for centuries. Used as a tool of war and colonization, rape was a way to conquer the people during attacks from the beginning of colonization. The lack of responsibility, justice, and criminal jurisdiction continues today on reservations. Many non-Native people coming onto the reservation know that law enforcement can't touch them. We as Native women are hunted. We are deliberately sought after by sexual predators. I call it hunting. Non-Natives come here hunting. They know they can come onto our lands and rape us with impunity. Murder and sexual assault is a real fear among Native American women. Native American women are victims of violence far greater than any population in the country simply because of who we are as Native women and what we represent, our tribal nations. This is America right now. This is not history. This is the system that we continue to consent to that has allowed, and because of a lack of concern on the part of the greater community of America, this system is allowed to continue. And apparently, the you know sexual assault predator community knows that this is a thing that they can get away with, but the lack of visibility from the rest of America allows it to just continue. And the lack of pressure on the FBI to prosecute these crimes a lack of pressure on the courts to give jurisdiction to tribal police to be able to arrest people and prosecute these crimes. It allows this system to just continue unabated and broken, and there is a trail of bodies and broken and devastated lives as a result. And then the white community points at indigenous communities and, and calls them alcoholics. You can see how tone-deaf and cruel that is. Yeah. They don't tie the alcoholism to oppression. Mm-hmm. And it's so, it, that is just the MO of America to create the tools, the, the mechanisms of oppression and violence and racism. And then to, you know, it's like throwing stones and hiding your hands. Mm-hmm. It's like you throw the stone and then it's like, look. They're doing X, Y. It's it's demonic. Mm -hmm. It is so demonic. 
Yeah. So I guess not too surprisingly, but still tragically, you can see how this would lead to the, both like the government neglect and the violence that is allowed, the trauma. Indigenous Americans have a lower life expectancy by about 5.5 years compared to average Americans. It is 8.8 years below the average for developed nations. So right now, American citizens who are Native American live 8.8 years less than the average developed nation. That is unacceptably tragic. This includes higher rates of death from chronic illness, including diabetes, chronic liver disease. So we already have lower life expectancy than other developed nations. But right. then for Native Americans, it's 5.5 years lower than That's that. That's crazy. And this includes higher rates of death from chronic illness, including diabetes, chronic liver disease, cirrhosis, mellitus, and suicide. Mm. So the medical disparities that are created from racism, from oppression, which is medical racism. Mm-hmm. Yep, a lack the, of... Im- the impact that it has on people's physical and mental health. Yep, a lack of basic health services yeah. in tribal communities. Yeah. The commission's 2003 report, A Quiet Crisis, found that, quote, funding for services critical to Native Americans, including health care, law enforcement, and education, is disproportionately lower than funding for services to other populations. Despite the historical and ongoing promises made to Native Americans as part of conditions for the treaty-making tribes who agreed to cede millions of acres of their homeland to the United States and accept its protection. Native Americans living on tribal lands do not have access to the same services and programs available to other Americans, even though the government has a binding trust obligation to provide them. Like other Americans don't have a treaty to point to to say you promised you would protect us and take care of us. And yet they receive far better protection and provision than these tribal communities who gave up millions of acres for those promises. And then a decade later, another commission, uh, more than a decade, in 2018, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights issued a follow-up report titled Broken Promises. It said that there are currently... 573 federally recognized tribes across the U.S. Native American and Alaska Native tribal sovereign entities that have government-to-government relationships with the United States and are entitled to certain federal benefits, services, and civil rights protections per numerous treaties, laws, Supreme Court decisions, and executive orders. As part of entering into treaties, the federal government acquired Native American lands and agreed to provide Native Americans with certain services, such as the preservation of law and order, education, housing, and health care. The report goes on. Due at least in part to the failure of the federal government to adequately address the well-being of Native Americans over the last two centuries, Native Americans continue to rank near the bottom of all Americans in terms of health, education, and employment. Native Americans face unique challenges and harsh living conditions resulting from the U.S. having removed their tribes to locations without access to adequate resources and basic infrastructure upon which their tribal governments can foster thriving communities. Native Americans are more likely to live in poverty, be unemployed, experience rape or abuse, and be killed by police than any other ethnic or racial group. Native Americans have 1.6 times the infant mortality rate of non-Hispanic whites, and life expectancy for Native peoples is 5.5 years less than the national average. 
Native American students have the lowest high school graduation rates in the nations. The broken treaties have left many reservations without adequate access to clean water, plumbing, electricity, internet, cellular services, roads, public transportation, housing, hospitals, and schools. The often mm-hmm. isolated locations, lack of accurate and full inclusion in the media and in textbooks, and persistent discrimination have rendered their reality often invisible to other Americans. And this is all from this commission. I continue, uh, this is like a composite quote from parts of the commission report, but I want to continue to read it. It says, Native American program budgets generally remain a barely perceptible and decreasing percentage of government agency budgets. Failures have included longstanding and continued disregard for tribes' infrastructure, self-governance, housing, education, health, and economic development. The commission found these failures created a civil rights crisis in our nation. Despite some progress, the crisis remains and the federal government continues to fail to adequately support the social and economic welfare of Native Americans. While many Native Americans are succeeding as teachers, doctors, lawyers, artists, writers, scientists, and entrepreneurs, the poverty rate of Native Americans is approximately twice the national average. They experience higher rates of unemployment than any other racial group. The unemployment rate for Native Americans approaches 80% or higher on some reservations. My God. Individuals on tribal lands are more likely to lack access to broadband internet compared to other individuals living in rural areas. Which, I mean, at one level that's shocking, and at another level it makes sense. If you don't have roads, internet, cellular services, basic infrastructure, schools, like if you don't have these elements of infrastructure, then it's not so surprising that the poverty rate would be super high because how do you even plug into the economy if you're so under-resourced that you don't even have that opportunity? Stacy Bolin, executive director of the National Indian Board of Health, described her view on the promises made in treaties at a 2016 briefing where she said, we exchanged 400 million plus acres of land and our way of life and our very lives for peace and for provisions that are provided in the treaties and a basic human dignity of having basic services for American Indian and Alaskan Native people. feels pretty hopeless that this is going to get fixed. I almost, the whole time you're explaining all these things, I'm thinking like, I'm wondering why why it does seem so much more invisible than even like the black experience here from the beginning of this country. I mean, it's really terrible. And it doesn't seem to be getting better. It actually seems to be slowly, invisibly getting worse. Right. Yeah, I don't know. And then I think like when, especially as a Christian, and you think of like, it's easy to think like when I think of the least of these, you know, I don't even really even think about indigenous people. I think I almost think like probably most most white people think like poor people that live near them are like the least of these. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, it's, I don't know, I feel a little bad because I haven't really, you know, that it just seems like, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's by definition kind of invisible because for a lot of these communities are on reservations. And so it's a form of segregation. It's the same thing, part of why segregation was so devastating for black communities in America is because once you isolate a community to one place, government neglect becomes invisible. Like if you have 
like an integrated community. And the government charges more for property taxes for one house than for the next door neighbor. You know, they'll talk and it'll be exposed. They'll see it. The media will report on it. If, if you have an integrated community and the school buses pick up only certain kids and take them to one school and other kids to another school, that's visible to everyone. But when you have a community like a reservation where the government is being neglectful, it's not visible. Mm. People don't just see it. And when indigenous people report on it, they're not believed or they're not, they don't have a platform to be heard by the rest of the country. And then white people don't report on it because... If you dig into it very deep, it becomes depressing and it becomes overwhelming. And white people also just don't want to have to grapple with how much they owe for that 400 million acres. And if you start to think like, should we actually be faithful to our treaties? It's almost a prohibitive cost to be faithful to the treaties because of how much we actually owe. And so for most white Americans, they don't want to pay that cost. So they don't even start to go down the road of thinking, what does it look like to love my neighbor who is living on one of these reservations and has no access to anything else? And so the tragedy is allowed to continue because we let it continue. <laughs>